Go on then. What are we watching? Oh, what about... Uh... In the... Uh, with Sky Stream. The new way to get Sky without a dish. Stream unmissable Sky exclusives like True Detective and Netflix shows like The Gentleman all in one place. For just €25 a month for 12 months. Search Sky Stream today. New customers only. 12-month minimum term requires broadband. Further terms apply. Are you feeling lucky this St. Patrick's Day? Easy Living Furniture has a pot of gold waiting for you with absolutely everything reduced across sofa, dining, bedroom, mattress and accessories. Get the three-seater dark grey Harper sofa for only 459 Donut 240-centimetre dining table for only 289 and much more. Don't miss out on these lucky savings at Easy Living Furniture. Find your local store online at easylivingfurniture.ie I suppose it all began with a curious dog called Millie. And this dog was brought by her owner up to Killikey Mountain outside Dublin for a walk with other dogs. And this curious little pup started bringing back bones. And this ritual continued over a number of weeks until the owner had to go in and f- try and find the dog where Millie had disappeared into the trees and realised, hang on a minute, her dog was gnawing on a human bone. And I suppose that was the starting point for, certainly for one of the most disturbing murder investigations in Irish criminal justice history. Elaine O'Hara was murdered in August 2012 by Graham Dwyer. The case is back in the news because Dwyer's appeal of his conviction has gone all the way to the European courts. I'm Fionn Sheen and you're listening to the Indo-Daily. Today I'm joined by special correspondent with the Irish Independent, Paul Williams, the author of the book Almost a Perfect Murder on the Killing of Elaine O'Hara, to tell the story of the victim at the heart of one of Ireland's most notorious murders. Paul, so often in this case, the focus is on the, the perpetrator, Graham Dwyer, and the victim almost gets forgotten. Who, who was Elaine O'Hara? But that's a very good point, actually. Um, Elaine O'Hara was perhaps the ideal, uh, the ideal candidate, the ideal victim for this particular kind of crime. To, to give you a, a picture of who Elaine was, she was a very vulnerable, fragile young woman. She'd been blighted by depression and anxiety and a lack of self-esteem since her childhood. Um, her mental health issues first manifested themselves uh, when she was as self-harm when she was still very, very young. Um, and then she had spent a lot of time through her life in psychiatric hospitals. She had suffered particularly from suicide ideation. Um, uh, and she had she was diagnosed as having a, an absence of self-worth. She had a personality disorder. Um, you know, she she didn't she had very poor interpersonal skills. Um, she was socially withdrawn. She was untrusting to people. She had few close friends. She had no boyfriends. And, you know, she tended also to keep her family at a safe distance. Um, her medical records, for example, noted that she was sad and angry and was finding it difficult to control her impulses at quite a lot of the time in her life. Um, and her situation was even further compounded. Um, by the fact that she suffered from asthma and diabetes and she smoked very heavily. Um, She also had dyslexia. So to say that um, she was given a raw deal in life is to put it mildly. Um, She had also 
attempted to take her own life on a number of occasions. And then somewhere along the line to make it even more complex and tragic, you know, this exceptionally troubled young woman gets drawn into the world of sexual fetishism where she became involved in this, you know, BDSM scene. And it was through that, um, which again was an extension of her lack of self-esteem, it was through that involvement in BDSM that she came to the attention of this faceless predator who was prowling around in the, the world wide web waiting for her, somebody like her to pop up. And when did she disappear? She disappeared on the 22nd of August, uh, 2012. Uh, on that particular day, she had come out of, uh, she was in St. Edmundsbury. It's a, it's a private psychiatric hospital in West Dublin. And she had become so clued into her own um, condition, so to speak, she had noticed that things were getting very much on top of her in her life in uh, about July. And she voluntarily uh, admitted herself to Edmundsbury because she, she was feeling those, the, the, the suicidal ideation was becoming too much for her. And she was, she was very wise that way. She had, she had decided, I'm going to preempt this. So on that particular occasion, the doctors and her counsellors all said, she's showing great, um, great progress. Uh, her mum and, or sorry, her, her dad, her mum was dead, but her dad and, and, and her siblings also shared that view that she was doing really well. And she was coming out of the, the, the hospital that day with the view, she was going to take part in the Tall Ships uh, Festival that was taking place in our, in Dublin as a sort of a volunteer. Now that for her was a mag huge, magnificent step forward in her recovery. Everybody was delighted for her because here she was, volunteering to be a senior uh, helper at this Tall Ships uh, event, which was like, everybody thought this is the best news they've heard in years. And so everything was going good for her. And she spent that afternoon with her dad, um, who she was very close to, and her uh, her niece. And then she went to see her mum's grave, uh, visit her mum's grave. And then that evening, Everyone, the dad left her and thought, this is great. We look forward to seeing you the next few days. And she was all excited about the next day going into the tall ships and she was never seen again. So Paul, because the last place that Elena O'Hara is, is spotted is on the beach uh, in Shankill, it's, it's assumed basically that she has committed suicide. There's a search for about a, a week for her. And effectively, uh, it's thought that, that her, her body is, is, is gone to, to, to sea. A year later, there's a series of quite bizarre coincidences in August, September of, of 2013 that that really put an entirely different picture on the, the disappearance uh, of Elaine O'Hara. Tell us about the coinciding events that occurred in Kiliki in the Dublin Mountains and Vartry Reservoir in the Wicklow Mountains. The fact that this case ever came to light at all is absolutely extraordinary and probably miraculous. In 2013, you may remember, we had a fantastic summer. Uh, and as a result of that, Vartry Reservoir was very low. Uh, it, had, it had dropped down considerably. Now, in around August 2013, a dog trainer began walking dogs in the Killikee Mountain. Uh, in Raffarnham on the outskirts of Dublin and with her own dog, Millie. Millie went away a few times on a few of these trips uh, and started coming back with small bones, which the owner thought belonged to, uh, you know, a dead animal. Now, on September the 10th, 
uh, this guy, William Fagan, who was an angler, he was standing with friends on Sally's Bridge at Vartry Reservoir, near, just outside Roundwood, um, and 20 miles from Killikey, right across the, 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 the mountain, just almost like as the, as the crow flies, um, from where the body was eventually found. And they were looking in at the water, and it had dropped from something like 20 feet to around 18 inches. And while they were looking in across the bridge, they noticed, uh, uh, first of all, a rope, and cuffs and restraints and they thought this is very weird so they started fishing this stuff out and it, uh, all the stuff came out of the paraphernalia of of BDSM practices um, and the angler this he that night he, he couldn't really handle it, it really bugged him he left the stuff on the wall and it really bugged him and that's another aspect of this case everybody who come near this case always found something nagging them I need to do something more so that night he sat at home and he thought about this and he thought about it and he went back to the spot and took the haul of stuff the next day and brought it to Roundwood Garda Station where he handed them over to Garda James O'Donoghue. And he, the guard, young guard was quite mystified by this and he basically was again struck by this nagging feeling about this. What is this about? So he went back to investigate the following day but the high winds had muddied the water and the, the silted up the water so he couldn't see in so he said I'll come back again. Meanwhile, 20 miles away away in Killikee the following day, September the 13th. You know, the dog trainer's out with her dog, Millie, again. This time the dog disappeared, didn't return. She went into the bushes after the dog and found the dog was sort of gnawing on a, on a very large bone that he that you couldn't carry back. Um, and then she got this very bad feeling when she was in this enclosure, this enclosed space inside in the forest. And uh, she spotted a pair of tracksuit bottoms uh, beside bones. Uh, and then she, as I say, she got this chill of foreboding came over her. And then she spotted um, a pair of shoes. And she just retreated and said, there's something wrong here. And she met, went with two of her neighbours later up and they, they, they started looking at the scene. At first they thought it was just an animal uh, had died and then they found a human mandible. The police are called. And this then becomes a missing, like, who is this person? And they started checking all their missing persons files. So they had one woman missing a year and her name was, was Elaine O'Hara. Then the following Monday, the guard goes back to the spot again at Vartry. He finds more bits and pieces of stuff, including very significantly, he finds a, a set of keys with a Dunn Store's uh, uh, customer tag on it. And he basically rings up Dunn Store's and said, I'm conducting an inquiry. I'm just trying to find out who owns these keys. In the meantime, the, the dental records are confirming that this is indeed Elaine O'Hara, a woman in her 30s who went missing exactly a year, just over a year earlier. On that same day, uh, he gets a call, the, the, the guard O'Donoghue, and he's told these belong to a woman called Elaine O'Hara, and this is her address, Bellarmine Plaza in uh, in Stepside. So he picks up the phone and rings. Um, he looks up Pulse and sees that it's down as a case from Black Rock. He rings Black Rock and he says, "By the way, um, I'm just there's a woman missing woman called Elaine O'Hara. I'm after finding her keys." And the guy on the phone says, "What?" And they couldn't believe it, and they said. Stay exactly where you are, we're coming. And then this case takes on a really extraordinary, dramatic turn. So then, Paul, what leads the Garda investigation that now has Elaine O'Hara's mm-hmm. body and Elaine O'Hara's belongings from two separate locations conjoining now together to Fox Lock architect Graham Dwyer? So what they do is they send out a search team out to Vartry and guard divers go in and they start searching around the bottom of the reservoir and they dig up a load more 
bondage gear. But the most significant thing is they find the first of two mobile phones that were thrown into the, the reservoir. Now, they went back a second time and found the second phone. So they take the phones and they begin to they identify the phones as the master and slave phone. And basically, these two phones provided a very, very chilling and terrifying narrative, which literally brings you, the reader, uh, and the investigators walking with Elaine Hara quite literally to her death. They, these two phones were particularly active in the months just leading up to Elaine's death and right up to the moment of her death. And you can see him guiding her, telling her, number one, uh, this mystery man, the master, telling leave your telephone, which she always brought with her, leave your asthma uh, medicine and your cigarettes behind. Only bring your slave phone. Now, they, that also fed in to the belief that Elaine had tragically taken her own life and gone to the shore. And the very last text on that, the last line in the text was, go to the shore and wait. And quite literally, she went to the shore and waited for the person who was going to murder her. So, through the phones, the guardian are led to, to Graham Dwyer. Who was he? Well, Graham Dwyer is, uh, was, uh, the best way to describe him is classical uh, twig in the forest. Mr. Nobody. Mr. Anonymous. He, li- he was an architect. Uh, his wife's also an architect. The two kids. Lovely wife. Uh, you know, he had managed to hide this monster uh, that was inside him from his wife uh, and his closest family. Uh, but what we discovered, what was discovered about him was that he was basically uh, a, a, what's called a picarist. Now, a picarist, the psychological description of it is the paraphilic sexual arousal, which hinges on the sadistic piercing and stabbing of another person, especially in the breast, buttocks, and groin, which may cause enough bleeding to be fatal. Basically, they only can get derive sexual satisfaction or gratification from inflicting pain. Now, ironically, the the Journal of Investigative Psychology and Offender Profiling did a piece on this uh, and he had printed it off and was reading it. Um, And these were the classical characteristics of Jack the Ripper. Um, And he was very, he he was very, very much into all of that quite literally. Um, And like, they got evidence eventually down the road, for example, where he had been doing this not just with Elaine, but with other women. And, they f- and he had saved the videotapes of himself doing this. Um, pretty horrific, horrific stuff to watch. But this perverse side of his, of his personality started to manifest itself in his late teens. Uh, and a girlfriend who had known him in college told how he told her his fantasy was, was to you stab a woman during sex. And he started bringing a knife into the bedroom. Um, uh, and, you know, but still he, mi- <clears throat> he managed to contain this pernicious creature within himself, behind the wall, you know, of strict secrecy. Um, and we know, for example, that he was certainly involved with Elaine O'Hara for the previous two years, but also perhaps a period of time before that, and that he found her on a BDSM website where she had registered herself to be a slave. Uh, and that's how she came into his his orbit. Now, how did they find him? To put it, make a long story very short, um, they took the, uh, the the analysis, they got analysts in to study all the text messages because within this huge amount of text messages that they'd uplifted, they found 
he was giving details of his life, the birth of his daughter, um, uh, flying. He was flying in a flying competition. It turned out he was into model aircraft and all that kind of stuff. So basically over time, uh, and also, you know, they, they knew by what he was talking about, what he was saying on, on, in his text that he was going to Galway, say, for example, to do a job. They dovetailed all the information they have. They gave it to an analyst in Garda headquarters who then basically found the car he was driving and was able to analyze and find this person going through toll bridges on a certain day because the cell site analysis from the phones. Again, as I say, it was a very complex operation or complex investigation, brought all these pieces together. On the same day that the analysts in Garda headquarters discovered this is a Graham Dwyer. It was on 27th of September. Now, the, the investigation is about three weeks old or two weeks old, um, that this person may be of interest. At the same time, the Gardaí in Black Rock Garda Station had, through their own process of elimination, come to the same conclusion that the person they were looking for was an architect called uh, Graham Dwyer. Paul, th- this investigation proceeds quite rapidly and, and Graham Dwyer is, is arrested. He initially denies even knowing Elaine O'Hara. Well, he he did. And in fact, when he was arrested in the beginning of October, he thought he was better than the cops. He was cleverer than the police. They're all just gobshites as far as he was concerned. Like this is the kind of hubris and arrogance in this man. And they had basically, Detective Sergeant Peter Woods, the man who led the investigation, it was a classic example again of good policing, particularly in interview techniques. Because what this exceptionally clever architect failed to realize was that he corroborated huge chunks of the evidence and information the police had at their their possession while he was talking. And yes, he he basically, his defense all the time was, Jesus, how can you possibly could you possibly associate me with this horrendous crime? But all the time, completely ignoring Elaine O'Hara as if she never existed. So he, all he was worried about was his reputation and his work. So the police basically hold him for uh, 48 hours and at the end of it have enough evidence to charge him and he's brought before the courts and charged with this horrendous crime. We then have this quite remarkable trial beginning in, in January of, of 2015 and really it capture the attention of, of, of the nation. What defence did, did Graham Dwyer mount at his at his own trial? There's no evidence. There is no evidence to cause of death. There was no evidence uh, linking him in any shape, make or form. He claimed to uh, the murder of Elaine O'Hara. First of all, he said you, you, the argument was because you only have a very small number of skeleton remains that it's impossible to the order to sustain a murder charge, you have to be able to prove the cause of death and how this person died. So it was all, it was a wall of circumstantial evidence in the end. Um, and as the, as, the, as the state prosecutor in his trial said, you know, this was almost the perfect murder because he, if it wasn't for all these coincidences that we discussed and the weather and, uh, like, and the magic of technology, this would never have come to, to, to be found. And, and it, the belief would have continued that, that, this poor woman had tragically ended her own life. And his defence is effectively a classical one. What's the cause of, of death? Mm. What's the murder weapon? Are there, are there any witnesses? So all that we would regard as the as the traditional kind of Columbo clues that, that uh, police forces across the world, including 
the Gardaí would have mm-hmm. uh, to convict someone of murder. None of that is there. So how do Gardaí secure a conviction? Well, they're based on, quite significantly based on the, the telephone evidence, the cell site evidence, what was said in the in the uh, uh, text, what, how they were corroborated by his own words. Then there was CCTV from the apartment before uh, Elaine's uh, murder, you know, showing him with her. Um, they found really disturbing material on his computers, by the way, as well, where he had all these weird fantasies about murdering people, including this killing Darcy, this young troubled woman he found on, on the internet uh, in America. Who had who suffered from suicidal ideation, and basically she gave evidence against them in, in the court, and the police tracked her down. Um, there was the, the DNA, the mattress that had been kept in her apartment. The DNA on the mattress clearly showed matched him, um, and also significantly in the mattress they found that had been in, in Elaine's apartment, the, the holes created by stab wounds or, or stabs from 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 a from a knife. They also had material about him buying a, a knife, a really horrible looking thing and Rambo type knife online uh, which he had bought for himself why did he have that so there was in the end a wall of circumstantial evidence uh, to convict him and it was a sound conviction because he didn't have any explanation of any kind Paul Graham Dwyer is appealing his conviction but it mm. it's not what we would view as a, a straightforward appeal it's effectively gone to the to the Court of Justice for the European Union mm-hmm. uh, on the grounds that he is claiming that his privacy was breached through the use of this phone data, which resulted in his conviction. Yes. Where is that uh, position at now? Well, we're, it's it's a waiting game. A lot of people. There's a huge concern amongst the public about all of this because there's people been reporting that there that you know this could end up he's going to walk free and he's a step closer to his freedom. That's not necessarily the case. In fact, it is quite a preposterous proposition when you think that um, a, a person with a diseased and uh, mind like him, as it was described in court, uh, could perhaps even be facing the prospect or even the hint, a hint of the prospect of walking free uh, from committing this horrific crime purely because his privacy had been interfered to poor dear. You know, talk about something that has the potential to fuel Euroscepticism um, we have to just wait. It's in the lap of the, well, it's not the lap of the gods, it's the lap of the, the Supreme Court, the European Court of Justice, and ultimately then the Court of Criminal Appeal. So we will see some movement on this maybe next year, um, but we have to wait the final outcome from the, the, the European Court of Justice and then the Supreme Court's uh, interpretation of what they come across with. So you, there are many hurdles here, here still. So you, you would have to have a ruling in his favour from the the European Court of Justice, that would then go back to to the Supreme Court, which yeah. would then have to agree with that uh, ruling again. He would he would have to have a ruling in his favour there, then go into the to the Court of Appeal, uh, and then this a decision then on whether or not there there should be a, a retrial in this case. So very many hurdles. Ultimately, do you think that? Graham Dwyer is, is, is going to get out here and his conviction be overturned. Having looked at this case very, very closely, I, I would say no, because there's a lot of other evidence. I think if he walks, there will be absolute uproar. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. The law is blind. It must be, it must be blind in order to, to, to function. Um, I don't believe, and a lot of people, legal 
very experienced legal people would say they don't believe that he's going to walk or that he would get a retrial. Um, so I think that while we are going through a very sort of nervous and particularly, imagine what it's like for, for Elaine's family, um, going through this period of uncertainty and uh, anxiety over whether this diseased mind is going to be freed. Um, the feeling is that he will not ultimately uh, be freed and uh, or acquitted, but this will stand. I'm Fionn Sheehan, and today's episode was produced by Mary Carl, researched by Tabitha Monaghan, with sound by Gavin Hennessy. You can listen to the In the Daily wherever you get your podcasts.